my two brothers were murdered on 9-11. I live every single day without my father. FBI files show the Saudi government was involved. This golf tournament is taking place 50 miles from ground zero. It's disgusting. Worse than a slap in the face. You're taking money from an evil regime. These are 3,000 Americans that were killed on American soil. How much money to turn your back on your own country? 200 million? Sure. I'll forget about the atrocities. I'm never going to forget, never going to forgive the golfers for taking this blood money. Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here. And I started with that clip today because I want to start with talking about the Saudi Arabia funded live tournament, which is kind of the reaction to the PGA Tour. And it's a new golf tournament that is controversial. So the video you saw is an ad from a group called 9-11 Justice. And it's basically a, people, a group of people who, you know, lost loved ones during 9-11 and want accountability. I mean, keeping it simple. And the reason why I started with that video is because the Saudi-funded and created golf tournament called Live has come to the United States. And I believe it started in the UK back in June. But the Washington Post writes in quotes here, Former President Donald Trump joins hands this week with the biggest controversy in sports when his New Jersey golf club hosts the latest in the Saudi-funded Live Golf Series. For those who have not followed this, Live is a professional golf tour financed by the Public Investment Fund, the Sovereign Wealth Hedge Fund of Saudi Arabia. And the name Live is a reference apparently to the Roman numeral for 54. And I am not a golf expert, but apparently that is the score if every hole on a par 72 course were birdied and the number of holes to be played at live events. So really clever, I guess. Okay, cool, guys, whatever. But yeah, this tournament, you know, it's it's funded by Saudi Arabia. So of course, it's just convenient that Trump is, of course, also associated with this. I don't know if any other really golf courses would want to be associated with this. But as we know, Trump has no shame. But unfortunately, some big names have joined the live tour. For example, you have Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Sergio Garcia, and the retired uh, golfer Greg Norman has reportedly been given $3 billion to try and lure the world's best golfers to play for Live. And a lot of the people that are playing for Live are being criticized, rightfully so. Um, I think it was Greg Norman who even said, he's like, ah, the Khashoggi thing wasn't that big of a deal. Like, who knows if it really happened? You know, they're downplaying it, trying to retcon it quite despicable so the pga i think is not going to let these people play on the pga side it's it's chaotic like look i'm all i i understand that some people are maybe angry with the pga and think that the pga maybe shouldn't have a monopoly over golf in the united states but you know saudi arabia is not the one to do it okay like if you don't understand that i don't know what you understand because they're, you know, the Khashoggi killing is just the most recent thing. You have the war in Yemen, ties with 9-11, just their human rights record. I mean, I could go on all day, but of course, like I said, it's fitting that Trump is hosting the event at his New Jersey golf course. <sighs> so fitting. And of course, Republicans, you know, are focused on Hunter Biden and Ukraine and his ties with them. But of course, you know, in a despicable way, Trump and Kushner and all of these people associated with him are so linked with Saudi Arabia, right? And Trump has publicly and privately dismissed human rights concerns about the Saudi kingdom, and he's railed against the pro-golf establishment. And he, uh, he's expected to be there all weekend, and he's been in contract apparently for months. I'm not a golf expert, but I guess he kind of hates the PGA, 
after they canceled an event at one of his golf courses after the 2016 election. So, of course, he's getting involved with this. Very not surprising, to be honest. But now this 9-11 justice group has been protesting outside the golf course. Apparently, they even wrote a letter to Trump about this conflict and why it was just horrific to host. And in a very Trump-like fashion, again, he told the Wall Street Journal in quotes here, I don't know much about the 9-11 families. I don't know what is the relationship to this. And they're very strong feelings. And I can't understand their feelings, but I can't really comment on that because I don't know exactly what they're saying and what they're saying who did what. <laughs> what? Like, what? I don't even understand that. Like, it's all over the place. But look, I, hard, I find it fairly hard to believe that Trump is this ignorant, right? He was the president, first off. Um, the president does get access to information. He must know something about what happened with Khashoggi. He, he also... Wasn't he the one blaming Muslims for celebrating on 9-11? Like, he's always been around during 9-11. Like, he, he, he knows stuff's going on. I mean, he's also a conspiracy theorist. Like, oh, Trump. Oh, he's just a glorified ass. That's all I can really say. Um, now, of course, because the world is crazy, um, you would think, okay, that's enough. We have golf hosting a controversial golf tournament run by the Saudis. But, no, of course, that's not all. There's, of course, an ethics violation by Trump around this event as well. So apparently just today, I was reading this morning, that Trump was spotted using the presidential seal on multiple items at the Live Golf Tournament, of course, just by the way. And apparently the seal was plastered on towels, golf carts, and other items that were going to be used, mainly things that were going to be in the camera's eyesight. And from my understanding, and just from everywhere I've seen, it's against federal law to use the presidential and, and vice presidential seals in ways that could convey, in quotes, a false impression of sponsorship or approval by the United States government. Because I don't think I'm crazy to say that the, the United States government probably doesn't agree with this tournament. I'm just assuming. But I guess Trump, I mean, I guess if you want to entertain it, it's probably because Trump thinks he won the election or wants to make that point. So he wants people to think, oh, it's the president hosting this event. So Nothing really surprising. The Wall Street Journal, or sorry, the Washington Post also does note that Trump could be going to jail for this. He's not. We all know that, so I'm not even going to cover it. But apparently a D.C.-based watchdog group has accused his golf courts in the past of profiting off images of the presidential seal. And, you know, just imagine if Obama was doing this right now. Uh, Bill Clinton was doing this. George Bush. Like, can you imagine the public backlash? But... Trump just, just gets away with everything. Um, but anyways, this, this tournament's despicable. I will not be watching it. I know that. <laughs> um, and I, I hope some of these golfers do get, get criticized by the public for this because not everything's about money, you know? And I'm sure, I know they were doing fine with the PGA. So really, did you have to go over to this, even if you don't like the PGA, to make a, sta excuse me, to make a statement by going for something even worse? I, I, I don't buy it. So... I want to mention Joe Manchin going on for a second. Um, I want to start by just saying that I, I find him hard to read. You know, he may be harder to read than Mandarin Chinese for me. And I, I don't speak Mandarin, but I, I just can't understand what makes up Joe Manchin, like why he does the things he does. I think The Economist says it best this week in an article. It writes in quotes here, Sometimes the Senate resembles a zombie film. You can never be sure what is dead and, and whether it will stay that way. So it was with democratic ambitions for climate change legislation. And I think this is an accurate statement because I woke up yesterday morning on Thursday, that is, 
and saw that Manchin had come to an agreement with, uh, with Schumer and the other Democrats in the Senate. Now, they haven't voted on it yet. I'll make that clear off the bat. But this is definitely good news, right? And to go back just a little bit, so on July 27th, Schumer and Manchin announced a new deal that would include hefty spending to mitigate climate change, along with other things. And let's remember that, oh, probably three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I, I don't have my timeline straight, um, Manchin said he would not go with Build Back Better because of inflation concerns. So everyone's like, all right, well, Joe Biden's Build Back Better is dead. And Joe Manchin um, announced basically that this new deal would happen. Um, and this happened on Thursday evening, I guess. And apparently the name Build Back Better is no longer a thing. And now it's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, whatever name change. I'm sick of all the name change, but I guess it sounds like something's happening. So anyways, the specifics are interesting because this is not the $4 trillion proposal to transform America that Biden initially had pitched and wanted, which is a lot of money. It's not surprising that they couldn't agree on that. But while this isn't that big, it's still something quite good, in my opinion, and it's nice to see that this could be passing. Um, this bill covers taxes, climate change, and prescription drug costs. Those are the main takeaways from it. All things that I do think should be focused on in the United States. Um, back on the old podcast, I did an episode about how Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, had argued and discussed and negotiated a global tax floor which would basically have a set corporate tax throughout the United States. So you could not have these havens like Ireland or the Caymans or whatever else where companies go so they don't have to pay taxes. And part of this plan seems to cover that in the price tag because part of this agreement or this tentative agreement is it looks like they have hopes of raising about $745 billion over the next 10 years by increasing tax enforcement in the IRS and by creating a 15% minimum tax on corporations. And that would be considered the global floor that Yellen has negotiated and called for. I think it would be good, to be honest. The Economist writes here in quotes, The federal government would also at last be free to negotiate the price it pays for, prescri for prescription drugs, excuse me, which would help release $288 billion over the next decade, which is according to estimates by the Congressional Budget Office. Again, letting the government negotiate prices would be good, especially for Medicare and Medicaid people. I, I think it's a good call. I, I do think that's a good idea because, as we know, prescription drug companies are a little bit greedy, to say the least. And now, I'm all for research and development. I understand that it costs a lot of money to create new drugs, but, you know, come on. Now, also, there are some interesting parts in the bill for climate. They seem fairly vague. Apparently, $369 billion would be spent on what they call energy security and climate change. I don't really know what that means. Please let me know if you can explain that better. Seems very vague. Again, I mean, a lot of this somewhat is. It's a big package. And this is probably the part where, from what I've gathered, there's going to be some more debates with Manchin here because I think he's going to want still there to be subsidies for the fossil fuel industry because as we know he has close ties with that so that's his this is where it gets a little complicated also there's other parts of the bill um, mansion is focused on government spending and cutting government spending as we all i'm sure are aware so part of the bill would go to paying off the national debt uh, 300 billion dollars would go towards paying off the national debt it's not very much if you think about how big the national debt is but you know if it makes mansion happy sure again 
I, I just find some of these price tags insane. Like we're we're seeing three hundred billion to pay off the national debt. Like why don't we help the people a little bit here? I I, I don't know. Uh, it it just seems like these big prices for things that are so vague. But there's also a section where it would extend subsidies for health insurance premiums. Um, they were from Obamacare. Uh, that'd be sixty four billion. So, you know, some of the stuff is good. Some of the stuff is vague. Could be a lot worse. Could definitely be a lot worse. Um, and, you know, while I'm glad to see that something is happening, because Biden definitely needs a win right now, <laughs> I think we do have to remember that Manchin changes a lot. And he's also susceptible to lobbying. So I, I don't know. I wonder if the pharmaceutical industry could push back. I wonder if he's going to hear outside criticism. I don't know. I don't totally trust this being done yet. There's also the issue of Kirsten Cinema, right? She hasn't been in the news as much lately, been kind of quiet, uh, I guess you could say. But we do have to remember that she's also a pain in the ass. I mean, she's really against raising taxes. And obviously, a lot of this plan is about raising taxes, uh, quite expensive. So, And so one has to wonder if she's still willing to support this stuff. So we're kind of in a weird place where basically Manchin has said he will support it, but they haven't voted yet. And of course, we cannot think this is a done deal yet. I've seen that they're going to try to have the vote happen next week. But with how crazy everything is... Who knows? Who knows what could happen? That's really all I can say. Um, this episode is going to be a little bit shorter today. It's been a little bit of a chaotic week, keeping it busy. But I lastly wanted to kind of talk about a coup for gold scheme that Russia has been running in Sudan, and it's actually been really helping them. So I want to move abroad. And basically, this has been unfolding between Russia and countries like Sudan. And basically the gist of it is it looks like Putin is trying to fund his war in Ukraine by a scheme to steal gold from Sudan. CNN reports here in quotes, multiple interviews with high-level Sudanese and U.S. officials and troves of documents paint a picture of an elaborate Russian scheme to plunder Sudan's riches in a bid to fortify Russia against increasing Western sanctions. The evidence also suggests that Russia has colluded with Sudan's beleaguered military leadership enabling billions of dollars in gold to bypass the Sudanese state and to deprive the poverty-stricken country of hundreds of millions of dollars in state revenue. In exchange, Russia has lent powerful political and military backing to Sudan's increasingly unpopular military leadership. So to go back, this I mean, this is really fascinating. Um, humanitarian tragedy, but also just fascinating because Apparently, so let's remember there was that military coup back in, I want to say it was 2021, that overthrew Omar al-Bashar. And apparently Russia, Russia actually supported and helped the military do this coup. And ever since this, there was kind of a democracy prior to this, and Russia basically helped them overthrow this. And the reason is pretty simple, is because Russia wanted access to Saddam's resources. And helping the military do the coup would obviously create a more friendly relationship with the military because the military obviously is fine with working with Russia. It's fine with suppressing human rights and suppressing democracy. So it looks like Russia benefited from a coup, so they actually were helpful in the coup and has helped them get more and more access to gold. And so moving along, now we have Russia and Sudan in a quid pro quo situation, basically, where the Russian military gives way, uh, sorry, weapons and training and aid in exchange for gold. And of course, of course, we can't talk about this without talking about the Wagner Group or the Wagner Group, who I did a long episode on back in the spring. 
And of course, of course, they are involved in this. So the article reads in quotes here, at the heart of this quid pro quo between Mo Moscow and Sedun Sedan, sorry, his military junta, is Yegevny Pirozhin, who's a Russian oligarch and a key ally of President Vladimir Putin. And this guy is busy because he not only is part of the leadership for the Wagner Group, or at least he helps control the funding for the Wagner Group, but he also seems to be highly involved in pretty much everywhere from the Central African Republic to Syria to now Sudan. This guy's moving around a lot. And he's also linked to this U.S. sanctioned company, which is called Moreau Gold. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. So he's actually in charge with running one of these gold companies in Sudan. Of course, funded probably from either Putin, other oligarchs, and the Wagner Group as well. So you're having a fun mix of awful actors. And basically, what this Moreau Gold Company does is it extracts gold in Sudan, and it also uses some of its funds to train and give arms to the Sudanese military. And basically, the Sudanese military looks away while this gold extractor is working, then they ship it overseas. So basically, this company, under, under the watch of the Russians and this um, Yegevni Pridotsin, is that they can loot the country... Um, while working with the dictatorship and also suppressing freedom and being an enemy of the U.S. So pretty much both sides of this autocratic nightmare are happy. <laughs> it's really depressing. And uh, apparently the guy who's done a lot of reporting on this is Mikhail Kordovovsky. Um, I talked about him back when the Ukraine invasion really started. He was that guy who was one of the richest men in Russia. He was kind of one of the original oligarchs. And he's become very anti-Kremlin, and he lives in exile in, in uh, I think it's in the UK. And he runs a watchdog company that tracks uh, different individuals and their ties around the world with the Kremlin. And he's done a lot of reporting and just interviews about following these people in Sudan. So he actually has pretty good information on that. Um, moving on as well, apparently Russia has been getting gold actually since 2014. So kind of right when the... Uh, like, initial sanctions began when the first invasion of Crimea happened. So we're looking at eight years of pretty much just looting the country's resources. So by now, they're really versed and trained in how to get this gold. They've done it, you know, for eight years, like I said. And it's interesting. So the issue actually expands out of Sudan, of course, because we wouldn't want it just to stay there. Um, apparently, according to that CNN article, 16 of the flights carrying gold that were intercepted by Sudanese officials last year were all heading to Syria. So Syria is obviously involved in this. I don't think that's really very surprising, as we know how, how close Assad's regime is with, with the Putin regime. And, you know, this is actually some interesting information because back when I covered the Wagner Group, oh, I think it was back in February or March, it was interesting to see their ties with a lot of North Africa and Sudan. And now it's kind of starting to make sense because Putin actually has interests there, especially to um, evade these sanctions. And so it's, it's putting a lot of pieces together for me, honestly. Now, I, I guess there's also questions, of course, about how accurate is this information? Because obviously we're in Sudan, which is not a welcoming country to uh, American reporters, American officials. Apparently, and also Russia obviously hasn't been very transparent about this stuff, but a lot of this actually came from interviews with a whistleblower from inside the Sudanese Central Bank, and he showed a spreadsheet that had about 20, or sorry, 32.7 tons of unaccounted for gold. And using current prices, this amounts to about $1.92 billion worth of missing gold. But from everyone I've been reading, they say that's just not, not even close to how high it actually is. 
And apparently when reporters arrived at a site to, to actually cover this case and talk to the whistleblower, um, it, was, it was five miles from Ali Bayaya. Um, there was a Soviet flag fluttered above the compound, and there were Russian fuel trucks everywhere. So it was clearly obvious that the Russians have a huge presence in the area. Um, of course, the other side of this, too, is that the Wagner Group has boots on the ground there, and they're actively helping suppress democracy and human rights. You know, this group is evil. They have... They, they glorify the SS and other Nazi groups. Um, they've been known for killing hundreds and, or maybe even thousands of innocent civilians around the world. Not a nice group. Um, so they are there. Human rights are not looking great. And second, this also means that the country is moving further and further from democracy, and Russia, and Russia is just bolstering them up, which is not great. And it's, it, it's, it's really too bad to see, because obviously, I, I, even, even under their democratic leader, he was still not particularly what we would call a, a benevolent leader by any means, but they've definitely backslided. And it's just insane to see Putin's kind of just influence around the world. And I know in the past, the US and the CIA have not done perfect things. But this this is just a whole other level, in my opinion. And I guess to even go further is it could be a harbinger for things to come because Russia's uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who's a real piece as well, he's on a four nation tour to Africa. Um, I, I remember seeing that covered over the last week, and the Russians want access throughout Russia, and they're getting it, which is troubling. We have to remember, you know, that Uganda, Ethiopia, and Congo, to name a few, have remained neutral on the on the invasion of Ukraine. And these are obviously not great countries of, you know, democratic bastions either. And I can't help but wonder if they are hoping to, like, if the Russians are just hoping to influence anti-democratic groups there and also plunder their resources use them, make sure that they vote or stay neutral in, in United Nations votes. There's a lot of reasons why why I think Russia wants to be there peddling influence. And there's there's actually some interesting information from DW that I pulled up when I was just uh, researching for this episode. And to add some numbers about the Russian influence, apparently in 2019, so a little outdated, but still relevant, Vladimir Putin hosted this Russian-African summit, and 43 African leaders attended it. And just one year later, Russia actually became Africa's biggest arms supplier. And according to a 2020 analysis by the Peace Research Institute, which is SIPRI, between 2016 and 2020, around 30% of all arms exported to sub-Saharan African countries came from Russia. And apparently that is significantly higher than China and the United States. I've seen numbers like China is about 15% and the U.S. is about 10%. So Russia, almost a third of all weapons that go to sub-Saharan Africa come from Russia. And I, I think with all the chaos in the world and all the events going on in Europe or back home or with China, we forget how much influence Russia still has in parts of the world right there. And as this crisis continues, or this war, this tragic war in Ukraine continues, it's going to be interesting to see how Russia maybe tries to survive off of some of these alliances or at least relationships in Africa. So, yeah, we're just going to have to follow that. I mean, this war from everyone I've talked to or listened to or read, no one thinks this is ending anytime soon. And maybe this is why Russia is not struggling as much as we were hoping, because they, they found some good relationships in sub-Saharan Africa. Lastly, I want to move on and just talk about Viktor Orban, someone I talk quite a lot about on the podcast, kind of someone I really focus on because I think he's very similar to the changing America First movement in the United States. He's just several years ahead. Um, 
But I want to talk about him today because he's done it again and gone even more radical than before, which I didn't think was possible. But he seems to get more and more extreme and more troubling about every time he comes up in the news or about every time I read an article about him. So I'm going to assume by now all of you know his background, but so I'm not going to stick on that. But, you know, he created somewhat of the framework for a liberal democracy and has really hollowed out Hungary's democracy, eroded their checks and balances, and kind of controls the state, gerrymandered it, and is kind of a Christian nationalist, I would say. And he's really popular with the Tucker Carlsons, the Trump types. About a year ago, Tucker went to Hungary, to Budapest for a week, to basically on the ground cover stuff. And, you know, they, they, they all seem to be just adoring uh, Viktor Orban, which is troubling. But anyways, he had a very troubling speech over the weekend, probably one of the worst I've ever seen, and it just can't be ignored. So Politico reported yesterday in quotes here, leaders of the European Parliament's main group on Friday castigated Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's inexcusable statements on race and Europe, urging the bloc to continue withholding funds from the country. And to add some context, Viktor basically went to, went to Romania I guess every year he goes to this section of Romania that has historically had ties to Hungary. We have to remember this area is super complex. There's a lot of old historical ties, all that fun. But so what happened is he went to give this speech, which he does every summer. And I, I guess just to add context as well as I would say, some of these Romanian communities in this part of Romania kind of would be like the like Crimea in Ukraine where there are people that were historically Russian speaking and in this part or like parts of Poland that Germany wanted during World War II kind of similar to that and basically Orban went to Romania and always gives these grievance speeches about how these people need to be part of Hungary again blah 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 but this one was more racist than just grievance laced um, so he says here in quotes there is a world in which Europe European peoples are mixed together with those arriving from outside Europe now that is a mixed race world. In the Carpathian Basin, however, people are not mixed race. We are simply a mixture of peoples living in our own European homeland. We are willing to mix with one another, but we do not want to become peoples of mixed race. Then later he carped about uh, mixed race populations and the flooding of Europe with non-European migrants and, re and referred to the racist concept of population exchange. Um, he, he went on basically just to say he wants Hungary to be a white nation and they don't want immigrants. They don't want to be part of this project of multiculturalism. And it was quite a disturbing speech. Um, I didn't watch it because I don't speak Hungarian, so there is no point. Or, so, but anyways, this speech actually did get a lot of backlash in Hungary and around the world. Many, many people with Jewish heritage, um, many different Holocaust survivor organizations have all reacted and called this a Nazi-like speech, which obviously that makes quite sense. I, I could see that too. Um, this one article in DW I read also discusses how this Hungarian Hegedus, who is a close friend of Viktor Orban and is his special representative on social inclusion and modernization, which obviously hasn't been working well, has resigned. And the person is Jewish and the daughter of parents who survived the Holocaust. And, the soci and also is a sociologist. And so they were advising Orban, clearly not doing a great job. And Hegedus said the speech was a pure Nazi text and that the discourse was one of clear racial hatred. She called it not only discriminatory, but completely unacceptable and resigned, and rightfully so. And the Romanian foreign minister Bogdan Areșu also called the statements unacceptable. And it looks like the EU is now talking about withholding even more pandemic funds, which 
to be honest, I don't think really matters because I actually was reading this morning as well that Hungary is signing a gas deal with Russia. Basically, the Hungarian government said we will be fine, which was, I think, kind of like a fuck you to the EU and other European countries that are struggling. Um, and of course, that goes against the EU sanctions on Russia. Honestly, I think the bigger picture to me is I don't know if I see Hungary actually being able to stay in the European Union. Like, it's just all the values that Orban's government holds are just antithetical to what the EU wants in about every way possible. So I don't know how that really happens. Um, now, linking this back, so Orban actually gave a speech back in the mid-2010s in Romania as well at the same place, I believe. And it was about the future of democracy. And he basically had this famous speech where he said the future of democracy would be illiberal democracy. And I remember at the time people were shocked and people still talk about it because that was kind of his coming out moment as being this illiberal authoritarian and not uh, a fan of small d democracy. And honestly, at the time, him saying the future was a liberal democracy seems quite benign compared to what he's saying now. But it's also interesting because, like I mentioned at the top of this, is that he really is the poster child of a liberal democracy. And since we are seeing some of these values growing around the world, and amongst some in the United States, it's getting more troubling. My theory, though, as to why Orban is becoming more and more extreme and more fascist and less just illiberal but more troubling is because you can't really play with the liberalism without eventually going completely fascist. It just doesn't work, you know? His authoritarian nationalism and erosion of checks and balances along with racial and xenophobic rhetoric, cannot be put back in the box once it's released. And in my opinion, he's just gone full fascist. He won that election back in the spring, and it seems like that election really emboldened him. And now it just has been pointed out that there's more anger in his statements, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's troubling. And also, I guess if you wanted to find anything positive here is that this is the first time in Orban's five terms <laughs> as the head of government that close people around him have actually stepped down in protest due to his remarks. But to, to kind of, I guess, dash in your parade here a little bit, even if former leaders and politicians are speaking out, Orban has gerrymandered districts, eroded the independence of courts, and so much more. So it's going to be hard to get rid of him. So I don't actually have a lot of hope. So sorry. Now, going back to the concept for a moment about how it seems like you can't play with fascism or liberalism without going completely authoritarian or fascist, um, the America First Republicans that have taken over the GOP should really learn some lessons from this because, yeah, they they are going down this road, but unfortunately, it's they're obviously not listening or do not care because Viktor Orban is going to be speaking at CPAC Texas this coming month, which is just fucking insane. Vanity Fair writes here in quotes, the hardline anti-immigration leader who has become a favorite of the American right is scheduled to speak at the conservative gathering, which is also set to feature appearances from Donald Trump, Sean Hannity, and Ted Cruz. Good God, I would not want to be with anyone less than those three in a room. Just the dumb, dumb, and dumber, honestly. Um, good God. But of course, Orban has uh, s said he is not racist. He's, he's, he's responded to criticism. And, and he said being anti-immigration is about culture, not race. But that's just a, that's just a little dog whistle there. Come on. If, if, if anyone actually buys that, I think you're probably drinking the Kool-Aid too. Matt Schlopp, who I think is like the chairman of CPAC, or at least helps run it, he said something. He's, he's basically responded and said the calls to get Orban canceled from the event are just cancel culture and the left is fascist. You know, the usual stuff. 
But ironically, you know, CPAC is notorious for canceling people that speak out against Trump, like Romney was disinvited. They don't allow any never Trumpers there. And I think Bill Kristol has a good point. He said in quotes here, it's increasingly clear that for, that for today's American conservatives, Viktor Orban's frank and vocal illiberalism, bigotry, and demagoguery are not obstacles for their admiration for him. They're the reasons for the admiration. And yeah, I, I really would like to hope that Republicans have a little awareness to not invite this guy, but that seems to have gone out the door. You know, I always talk about how Democrats are bad at politics, but it seems like Republicans are trying to take that, take that from them. Um, anyways, have a great weekend. I will be back on Monday with another episode. Stay safe and staying, stay hydrated, stay cool, and take care. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, whatever else there is, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, take care.